Why study church history? Why is it important? Go ahead, Andrew. Absolutely. It, it shows the key. Yes, absolutely. What, it, what is it? What is, the, what is the maximum if we don't, what is it, know the past? We're doomed to repeat it? Um, absolutely. And yeah, as Andrew said, it shows us the, the, the sovereignty of God throughout history. Any other reasons to study church history? This neatly works out. As I'm, as I'm starting with pre-Reformation in most Bible colleges or seminaries, church history is broken up into two parts. You have the end of the book of Acts, or really the, the death of the Apostle John, A.D., roughly 90. This is the completion of the New Testament. And that usually runs up to uh, the, the pre-Reformation, the 14th century. And so, and then there's so much information, so much that has occurred from the Reformation, the pre-Reformation, to modern day. Church history actually doesn't end, though. Each day it continues, right? Because it, it is a continuing story. And so we, we will somewhat neatly jump into the, the, the pre-Reformation. But let me ask you a question. What benefits do we receive from the study of church history? Andrew touched on some. Absolutely. Hopefully we learn from it. What else? What are some benefits? You can even talk from, the, I don't know, how long have we been, in, you guys been in this class? Like a couple of years, it seems like. So hopefully you have reaped some benefits since the end of the first century up until at least the 13th century from learning from the mind of Jean. Go ahead, go ahead, Shirley. What are some benefits from church history? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, would, I would totally agree with you. I remember when I was setting off to my, uh, my, my educational journey through undergrad Bible college and, and, and now through seminary, one of the questions I had was, what happened for a thousand years? All too often, uh, especially in the Protestant church, the, my understanding growing up was, you know, the miraculous of the book of Acts, and it was just this awesome story. And then you had the apostles, and, you know, John writes the revelation, and, uh, you know, based off of visions and dreams that he had received, and then he dies. And the very next thing I really knew about was Martin Luther nailing 95 theses to a castle door in Wittenberg. And it was like, what was God doing for 1,500 years? Maybe you got to the year 3400, but there was usually a thousand year of, you know, they call it the dark ages, but I was literally in the dark. Did the church cease? To, how did the papacy come into being? What was the purpose? What was the time? You know? And so one of the things that I found interesting in my own study is that church history fills in the blank, very much so, of what has been going on in history. And it helps us to see that we are a part of a whole. At this very moment, we are a part of church history, even right now. This era that we live in, if the Lord tarries, will be written of in 100 years from now, 200 years from now. I often think of, even in my own life, what will be said of our era in church history? People will look back at our time and they will write about the time in which we lived and served 
and died as churchmen and churchwomen. And so I think about the benefits of church history. There are many, uh, just to list a few here. It increases my faith. I have grown in the faith through the study of history. As Andrew had said, and even as Shirley has pointed out, church history really is the story of God. It is the story of God's providence. It is the story of God. While you're listening, why don't we take our Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 16. But church history is the story of God. It is the story of God's providence, his guiding hand throughout the centuries. And it is a story that is based upon and built upon the confession that we see here in Matthew chapter 16. Give you a quick snapshot here. At the beginning of Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4, the Pharisees and Sadducees want Jesus to show them a sign. They want a sign to know that you are who you say you are. We want a sign from heaven, Jesus, because everything around us, though it bears witness, it's not enough for us. We want a sign. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you can look to the sky. What is it? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. The Pharisees were doing that, you see here. He says, you can determine the weather by looking to the sky. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. What's that? Crucifixion. Sign of Jonah. That he would be in the belly or in the heart of the earth for three days. So he left them and departed. Then Jesus, in the next passage portion here, warns the disciples about following the teaching of the Pharisees. And right now you must be wondering, when are we going to talk about church history? We're getting there, please. And it is rooted here in Peter's confession, verses 13 through 20. Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, verse 15, who do you say that I am? I mean, he says you, he's talking to all of the disciples, you plural, who do you all, y'all, as the southerners would say, say that I am. And Peter, stepping up for the whole, like he usually does, represents the whole of the disciples and gives this glorious confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the long prophesied one. You are the fulfillment of all the prophecy. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, Peter doesn't say, I need more signs to, 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 to get it. No, Peter sees and makes the confession because it has been truth revealed. And he nails it. He hits it right on the head. He tells the exact truth because God has revealed this truth to Peter. In verse 18, an often confused verse but he says, I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petra, and on this Petros rock, or you are Petros, and on this Petra rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says to Peter, 
Not upon you, Peter, which is the common misunderstanding, but upon the confession that you made, Peter. Upon this rock, Christ the rock. Upon this truth that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the church will be built. You see, the church is built upon the proclamation and truth of the gospel. The history of the church is the formation of this formation of this covenant community believers centered around this one confession. You are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. It is a story, as you have heard throughout uh, you know, Gene's time in teaching, it is a story in which the gates of hell came up against the church. But what is great to see here, and now God does not promise that the gates of hell will not push up against the church, that the church will not face opposition throughout centuries, but the promise is that the gates of hell, all hell, all world raging against the church will not prevail. We stand right now in the 21st century of the church. If you are listening through the first five centuries of the church, every single heresy, every single false teaching was leveled against the church in the first four or five centuries. And the church did not fall. Weak at times, but did not fall did not falter. Satan threw all that he had in the first 500 years and the church came out all the stronger. Church history is the story of flawed, broken vessels, earthen vessels, finite humanity used by God to advance God's purposes in the world. That's an awesome thing. Is that the history of the church is 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 flawed people being used by God to do and accomplish what God has purposed in this world. There's no other history like this. We can study American history, we can study Western civil well, you, you can't study Western civilization without the church. But you can study various histories of geographical nations. Nothing compares to this. The history of the church is transcendent. There are no walls other than, you know, it goes as far geographically. It it covers the globe. And as I said just recently, and what I want us to, to understand in the study of church history, it is the story of God at work providentially guiding and making something beautiful out of darkness and a world full of a fallen world, a world full of depravity and a world full of chaos. God is building up the bride of Christ. When I think over the 21 centuries of church history, some of the stories and some of the things that have occurred are so unbelievable. That they are really inexplicable. How did 12 men turn the world upside down? 11 of whom, well, 12 of the 13 counting Paul, would die as martyrs. How does one man's teaching ministry for three years lead us to these pews today? Church history at times is so unbelievable that I have to believe it. 
because it's the story of God and it's the story of the miraculous. And brothers and sisters, we are part of that story. God in his goodness, his mercy and his grace has taken you from the chaos, the darkness, and placed you right in the middle of that story. So we are not, as we study church history, outsiders looking in. We are insiders looking back. And we also need to ask the question, because church history is for the church. What are we doing? How are we contributing to the history of the church? What will be said about our generation? So, I hope you are excited to continue in your study of church history as we will touch on the pre-Reformation era. I think that'll take us maybe two weeks, definitely not three, maybe one and a half. But I want us to get into now this morning as we will consider uh, this, this time of the late Middle Ages. Now, when we, let me see if I got this here. Okay. So we draw the curtains back. And we have now entered into the late Middle Ages. PowerPoint just keeps getting better and better. I found them this morning. It was great. So we enter this period of time. This is a unique period of time. Uh, as you would think about the, the, the Middle Ages there, or the medieval time, they're broken up into three periods. There's the early, there's the high Middle Ages uh, or the Dark Ages. And then you have... Um, the late Middle Ages, really this time frame, we're dealing about 1300 to 1500. Now, 1517, that's the time of Luther. Um, so we're going to, we want to really look at what, what it was that led up to this, this wildfire, this, this, this lightning that just spread all throughout Europe in the 16th century. You don't understand the Reformation unless you understand what led up to it. It didn't just happen one day where Luther said, mm, you know, I'm going to, I got these 95 things that I see problem with, and, you know, I'm just going to write these down and nail them on. This was, this took place over the course of centuries. There were things going on in the church. And so I want to give you, I want to give you a snapshot of, you know, what's trending in the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, um, and I want to look at it from the perspective of certain figures, as you have done. Thomas Aquinas, or Thomas Aquinas, I believe we would pronounce his name Aquinas. He is a uh, very important figure, so we'll consider him this morning. The Fourth Lateran Council, this is very, very important uh, to understanding what leads up to uh, the pre-reformers as well as Luther. This took place in 1215. It actually kind of predates the late Middle Ages, but if you don't have an understanding of what's going on in the Fourth Lateran Council, you don't know what's building up to uh, this, this reformation that is going to occur. John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe. Some of you might have heard his name. Some of you have heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators. Let's consider him, um, as well as the Great Schism. The Great Schism and Jan Hus, or some people have they've looked at his name as John Hus. So I think it is more accurately pronounced John Hus. He comes right after Wycliffe. And so, for this morning, we will look at these five 
themes or topics, and maybe we get through them all, maybe we don't. Ideally, this will take us two weeks. But let us first consider Thomas Aquinas. Any, any previous understanding? Have any, have any of you ever engaged with who this man it was? I don't expect that you might have read any of his work, but ever heard of the name? Okay, so we have, we have heard of the name. Aquinas lived in the 13th century. As Sinclair Ferguson, one of my heroes, has rightly pointed out, he is one of the most influential intellectuals of the Christian era. This man was a brain. Quite intelligent. And so they nicknamed him the dumb ox. Which had no bearing upon his name or his, his intellect or anything like this. He was a thinker. He truly was. Around his time, right before him, was St. Francis of Assisi. Heard that name before? Yes, he was not so much an intellectual, but he was a man that was devoted to the proclamation and the spread of the gospel. I believe he is famous for writing just right before Aquinas is born, um, All Creatures of Our God and King. That was penned in the 13th century by St. Francis of Assisi. Well, Thomas Aquinas comes after him, and he's larger than even himself. He represents what is going on in the church, or in the, in the, in the West, in the European era uh, at the time. The scholastic movement was being taught in the universities, and I'll get into a little bit in a second here. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was a, a moderate realist, one of his most famous work is called the Summa Theologiae, uh, which, as you could look at the name, um, represents, or to translate it, the, the sum of theology, or really the, the mountaintop, the pinnacle of theology. This was an amazing work. He never finished it. Uh, you could purchase it. In Latin, and it's eight volumes, uh, as you see here, consisting of 3,000 articles, 600 questions. And it was one of the most comprehensive systematic expositions of theology. You would read a lot of it today, and you would say, I don't think so. As it is held mostly by the Catholic Church today. But Aquinas is a very interesting Figure. A couple more things on him. He championed the, the, the bringing together of faith and reason. His, idea, his thought was and his belief was that faith is reasonable. I think we would agree with him. He would say something along the lines of, I know, therefore I believe. I don't want to get too philosophical with you. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that statement in its entirety because in some sense, we believe, therefore we know. And so faith is not just simply, I have to know this, therefore I believe, because we have to sometimes see by faith, through the eyes of faith. So sometimes it is that we believe, therefore we know. But that being said, Aquinas was really known for 
his logical, uh, how would I say it? His logical method for proving the existence of God. And he broke it down into five ways. I don't have it on the slide, but you can listen. Five ways in which we can know God exists. And the first way in which Aquinas would read through logic and reason the existence of God is by observing movement in the world. Movement in the world, and I'm not talking about cars driving, but we're talking about uh, inertia, an actual movement in the world as proof of God being the immovable mover. God is the first to set in motion. So that was his first means or, or apologetic for the existence of God. Second, by observing cause and effect in this world, God being the cause of everything, or what we would, he championed the line of first cause. I was teaching uh, in the youth group, and I have this question box in the back of the, of the youth center. And every now and then we'll go through uh, a time where, hey, put your questions in the box. Whatever your questions are, write them on an index card, put them in the box, and we'll do a Q&A night. And so whatever is on your, you don't have to sign your name on it or anything like that, but because some people are embarrassed to ask questions and some people are, you know, in a crowd, especially teenagers, they don't want to make it sound like they don't know what they really don't know. So they, they signed anonymous. Almost every time we would do Q&A night, the question would come up, who created God? It's, it's, I enjoy the question. Because they're thinking, and they're saying, wait a minute. Okay, if God created man, well then, who created God? And so, without even really studying Aquinas, we apply Aquinas to this answer. God is the first cause. No one created God. Because if someone created God, as I told them, then that is God. And if that is God, what created that is God. This is God. And you keep going back and back until finally you have to come to the point, something came from nothing. There is a first cause. No one created God because God is God. And so Aquinas, observing cause and effect, God is the cause of everything. God is the first cause. The third way in which proving the existence of God is that he concluded that finite that the finite nature of beings, or, or, or yeah, yeah, really our finite nature, proves the existence of a necessary being. Our dependence, we are dependent creatures, proves that there is an independent one. It, is the ne- it necessitates a being independent, which is God, who originates only within himself. This is the aesthetic of God. He is dependent upon nothing. You will not go five seconds before you show your dependence because you just took a breath. God exists in himself. What that means, God does not need air to exist. God does not need water. We know this. He is spirit. We are dependent. Therefore, as Aquinas would reason, This necessitates the need for a completely independent being. Fourth, in his proving the existence of God, and this one might be a little difficult to understand, but noticing that in our world there is a pyramid of beings. 
And what does he mean by this? From the most basic of organisms to the, to the growing complexity of organisms, being the most complex organism we see in the world uh, is when we look in the mirror. Humanity is the most complex. And Aquinas reasoned that this was a pyramid leading to what, we, what he would see as a perfect being. As the complex continues to, to rise up in this pyramid, it ends... It is this ever, as he would say, an ever-increasing pyramid of perfection, and it ends with God. And his fifth way is that knowing that natural beings could not have intelligence without it being granted to them by God. God is the source of all intelligence. And so this was Aquinas's methodology for proving the existence of God. I, I don't want to critique him too much, but... He argues from logic and reason and not from Scripture. I think he's intentional in doing so, as maybe this would be a way in which to engage with unbelievers. But it also shows us the mind that he had in his day and the mind of those around him in his day. These are the things they were wrestling with, they were grappling with. Applying logic and reason also to the Christian faith. So he followed in the philosophical school of Aristotle, but he wasn't secular in the Greek like Aristotle was. He applied Aristotle's principles to the Christian faith. As, as I said before, um, he contributed greatly to the intellectual climate of the day and to future generations. Aquinas is read in Christian philosophy, uh, even in secular philosophy. But he had his shortcomings, as every person in church history does. And his, philo his philosophy, as we would see here, it caused him to endorse church practices. He could not see beyond. Though he was heady in his theology uh, and his philosophy, he couldn't see beyond certain practices that were being done in the church. And he reasoned, and through his logic and reason, he affirmed them. He further strengthened, uh, especially the doctrine of transubstantiation. This is very important. You will leave here, if you don't know what it is, you will leave here this morning knowing what transubstantiation is because this led significantly to the, 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 the start of the Reformation. The bread and the wine becoming the literal body and blood of Christ. This is still practiced today in the Catholic Church. And this is what he said at the end of his life, which is very, very encouraging. To a friend of his, he says, I adjure you by the living almighty God and by the faith that you have in our order and by the charity that you strictly promised me, you will never reveal in my lifetime what I tell you. I don't know if he honored it, but we get to re he reveals it now. Everything that I have written seems to me but chaff by comparison with those things that I have seen and have been revealed to me. And this is much like Paul's statement. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Aquinas would look back at his life. This is when he did not finish his great work. And he'd say it doesn't compare to knowing Christ. It doesn't compare all of my efforts, all of my intellect, as he would even reason that it's all dependent upon God. It is but a heap of dung compared to knowing Christ.
And so he maintained what the main thing was. And that is knowing Christ and following in the footsteps of Paul. So this is a little snapshot of Aquinas. If he interests you, if you're into Christian philosophy, you can read up more on him. Uh, he contributed greatly. I know he is, a, he, he is well quoted and uh, R.C. Sproul really uh, seemed to admire him in his ministry as well. But let us move our attention here now to the fourth Lateran Council. And if you have questions or clarifications, I like being interrupted. You know, I get to preach, so I do the monologue. Uh, but I like to engage. I like to know what you're thinking. So please, I, I actually thrive in that. Okay, Shirley, I opened the door. I broke this is, the... This is a part... Hey, so yeah, the mic, Mike knew it. He knew it. Okay, this is a partial thought. I'm wondering if he and others might have been the seeds of the Catholic Church... Um, promoting works over faith, salvation by works, if because he was so into reason, okay? Yeah, yeah, one of the difficulties that he could not get over, and I think you are absolutely right, and you're thinking in the right way, is that Aquinas could not get over the total depravity of mankind. That was a struggle of his in the extent in which man is fallen. So because he did not believe that man was with with a complete moral inability uh, to do what is right. That's where the works kind of came in. And he thought man was fallen but not dead. And therefore, you know, that contribution, you know, that, that, that salvation, he would say, is all of God, but we must contribute a part. It is what we would call synergism. Yes. Yesterday I met a man, I know this is off a little, but it shows you a proof of what I'm, why I'm thinking this. There was an 80-year-old gentleman in the restaurant where we were having breakfast, and he looked very distraught, and I just felt in, that I should speak with him. And Anyway, when I asked him if he believed in Jesus down the conversation a while, he said, I go to communion every week. It's what we... So there it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen... If we all were going to invent a religion, it would all look the same. It would be about our morality or what we do. Hence, every religion in the world besides Christianity has something to do with your morality and what you do. There is only one that says you can't do anything and it's been done. Again, as I say, church history is sometimes so unbelievable. The Christian faith, never in a million lifetimes would we come up with this story. I don't care if there was a million reincarnations. We would never come up with the story that God becomes a man and dies. And that to save creation, to save his people. And that his people can't do anything except they are totally dependent upon him. No, if I was making up my own religion, I would say something like, I go to communion every week. I would say something like, I try my best. I seek to live a good life. I try to put others before me. I try to live by the golden rule. And I would claim all the works that I do. Christianity is the religion that smacks you really in the face. It says, you can't, but it's been done. And so that believe on Christ, it's the lay hold of Christ. And that hits us at our very core because that attacks our pride. 
God resists the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. So yeah, you talk to people and it, there's something in all of us that, 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 that wants to contribute. And so, so even when we hear things like we're dead and we're morally, there's a moral inability and we can't, that, that, that rubs us the wrong way. But it's what God has said. And the beauty of the gospel is that it is finished and it is done. Thanks for sharing that, Shirley. So let's turn our attention to the fourth Lateran Council. Now, this predates a little bit um, Aquinas, but the, there were major things that happened here. Um, you can look it up. Uh, you can do a Google search and find all the constitutions that came from it. I'll highlight a few of them. Uh, it is called the Fourth Lateran Council because it was the fourth time that they met, if you didn't know. It was a council, so it was a, a large gathering. They called it an ecumenical council. Well, they just grabbed popes and, or not popes, but bishops and cardinals from various areas. It was mostly the church in the West. And Lateran just means that's where they met, in the Lateran Palace in Rome. In total, there are five of these. The fifth Lateran council occurs around the exact same time that Luther marches on Wittenberg. But here we are in the year... 1215, the Lateran Council, called by Pope Innocent in 1215. This point in time in the history of the church, the papacy is at its largest in power. This is when the papacy, the Pope, the, the whole system is at its zenith. 1215, 1216, and it begins to drop at this point. It begins, it's, it's cresting, it's, it's, it's made it to its pinnacle, and it starts to go down. And you would think through the, through the next hundred years, it's on going down this way. Leading up to the 1450 or, or really 13, 1378, when, when the great schism occurs, it starts trending downward. But at this time, the papacy has its greatest power. There's a political maxim. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is what we see beginning to take place. And so let's consider a few of the major results, the major things that came out of this council. Constitution number 10. There was a need to appoint more preachers. Oftentimes, I think as Protestants, we can look back and we can look back as what C.S. Lewis says and, and coined the phrase chronological snobbery. And what I mean by that is we look back and we think, oh, you did things so wrong. And what we need to do is try to do our best. We, we will always have a bias. And as Protestants, we, we tend to have a bias towards Catholicism. Um, and, I, and I would say that's rightfully so. But we need to look at and see that they also, during these times, they did good things. There were good popes. There were godly popes. Now, I'm not a heretic for saying that. Now, the papacy became corrupt, and it was, it was utterly uh, abominable at, at times. But we should look back with appreciation as well as a critical eye, but not to be, as C.S. Lewis says, guilty of chronological snobbery. We do that when we look at Peter when he denies Christ. Oh, Peter, why'd you do that? If I was you, Peter, I wouldn't have... Would you? Are you sure? So, there was a need to appoint more preachers. They recognized in the church largely that there were people in, the, in, in, in low, low, in poverty, poor people, and there wasn't enough preachers of the gospel. 
And so they wanted to get more preachers to, to administer the sacraments, but also to minister to the hurting and the needs of the people. This was a great reform that they were looking to do. And also from this council, the educational reform. It wasn't enough. And we talked about universities. We talked about, as Gina talked about, a lot of this came from the Lateran Council here. We need to educate the people more. And if they can't pay for it, we'll pay for it. We need people to, to learn to read, to write. And so we will place schoolmasters and we will place, place uh, people where the poor are. Here's one, Constitution 21. Mandatory annual attendance on Easter in confession to one's priest. Where do you think showing up on Christmas and Easter came from? You know the faces that show up twice a year? Well, it became mandatory in 1215. You weren't not a part of the church if you were living in the Roman, uh, you know, under the Holy Roman Empire. It was mandatory, and confession needed to be at least once a year. I kind of chuckled that just once? That's all they could ask for, huh? I think if I was a legalist and sitting at the council, I would at least ask for four times a year, at least once every, every season, right? Here's an interesting one. Number 54. You must pay your tithes before you pay taxes. Don't care what you owe. What you, it doesn't matter what you render to Caesar. Your tithes come first. Pay your tithes before taxes. And an interesting one. Oh, let me back it up. In 71, their 71st Constitution. They sanctioned the crusades into the Holy Land. There was this, we will recover Jerusalem. We will rid the Holy Land of the infidel. I believe it even says that in, in, in their constitution. What does that sound like to you? We will rid this place of the infidel. You've heard that language before came by the Christian church in 1215. This is a dark stain. This is a very, very dark stain. And it is a part of our history. Not a history we need to repent of because we are not guilty and we do not bear the sins of those who've come before us. But this is our story. And again, God is providentially working through the mess-ups and the mistakes and the sin, and the fallenness to build something beautiful. All right, continuing here, this one is the big one that came from the Fourth Lateran Council. And it comes in their first constitution. It was the first thing. And as they begin, this is what we believe. This is rock solid. And this is when it became dogma. This is when transubstantiation became the official practice of the Catholic Church. You can talk to your Catholic friends, and if you even talk about communion, well, the church has always believed. No, it was in 1215 that the church said, this is what we believe. This is the truth of what happens with communion. 
There is indeed one universal church of the faithful. They would also say if you are not a part of that universal church of the faithful, which to them is the Catholic church, outside of which nobody at all is saved, in which Jesus Christ is both priest and sacrifice. And notice the language. His body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread and wine having been changed in substance by God's power into his body and blood. One thing about church history that I didn't say, you cannot, you cannot divorce or separate or parse church history from historical theology. Because they are forever wed. And theology drove practice. And so here we see where history and theology come together. Now there was, uh, there was underpinnings. There were writers in the, the, ninth, the 8th, 9th, and 10th century that were going back and forth. Augustine of the 4th and 5th century totally, totally rejected and did not advocate for this view. And so the church had never agreed upon this. For 12 centuries, there was back and forth. It comes from John chapter 6. Jesus says, this is my body. And so this is where they would say, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. That's hyperbole, brothers and sisters. Jesus also says that I am the door. We don't walk in and open Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the one that is going to be sacrificed and broken. But now it becomes official. And this, if not the first, was the major domino to fall that was going to set ablaze the Reformation. It was this belief in what is called transubstantiation. Literally the word, it means a cross substance. So that when the, when the communion, which uh, here, we'll, we'll do historical theology Church history will apply a little practical theology. Do you know why the table is here and we call it a table? Prior to the Reformation, it was a stone table and it was, and you can go into the Catholic Church, and it was elevated and it was above the pulpit because the central part of the mass is the sacrifice, and so, that's why you're, the homily is 10 minutes, but the, 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 the sacrifice of the mass is the central part. Well, the reformers understood communion right. It is not a re-sacrificing of Christ. It does not need to be on a stone table. Rather, it needs to be brought under the pulpit because it comes under the preaching of the word. And we're going to put it on a wooden table because it's a meal. Because it's a fellowship. It's communion together. It's the Lord's Supper, not Jesus' sacrifice. And that's why, as you would even read here, the sacrament of the altar, it's not an altar, it's a fellowship meal. And that is a reformation that goes back to the first century. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together as a church and you have this meal it was a love feast is what they first called it. And it, this was the communion. It wasn't this re-sacrificing or this literal bread. No, they did this in remembrance of Christ. It is a, it is a looking back on the sacrifice. There's no, there's no uh, mystical change that is going on. And this is what Wycliffe will get into. But 
It is the coming together, it is the looking back upon the finished work of Christ, applied to our hearts by faith. It is in the present we, we, we consider ourselves, our standing before God. Are we living right before God? Are we living right before men? And it is the looking forward because Jesus says, I will not take of the fruit of the vine until I am with you again in, in my Father's house, right? So we look forward in the communion to that day when we will stand or we will sit at the table with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will behold him in his glory and we will take communion not by faith, but we will eat and feast with Christ in his presence. So past, present, future. This is one of the great things that came from the reformers. But this was the first nail of many, or the first domino to fall that came at the Lateran Council. The doctrine of transubstantiation, that upon consecration by the priest blessing it, the, the bread would turn into the literal body of Christ, the cup, the wine would become the literal blood of Christ. They also would not allow the laity to drink from the cup. I believe it's still a practice today. But nobody was allowed to drink from the cup. You were only allowed to eat of the bread. So what, even then, where's the value in just eating someone's body? This came from the Lateran Council. And so, here comes John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe is a champion. He is a lone voice in England. He was given this name after his death. He is the morning star of the Reformation. As I was thinking about him and the name that was given to him, this title... How fitting when we would understand his life. But also, I thought, what will be said of me after I'm gone? How will I be remembered? What about you? How will you be remembered? What is the, what is the thing that people will say about you, another thing that I that often uh, with with the students and really anybody uh, that, I, that that I talk to, um, a great question you should ask yourself is, what do you want to be said about you at your funeral? If you were to attend your funeral, what do you want heard and said by others? Some people will answer the question that I, you know, that I loved people, that I cared, that I was faithful, that I, I gave my life, and I think that's awesome. Are you doing that? In order to finish well, we need to run well. And so when I think about this title given to him, the morning star of the Reformation, Wycliffe from start to finish ran well. He finished well. And they humiliated him even after, they tried to humiliate him after his death. I don't think he was very humiliated as he stood in glory. 
But he was, born, he was the morning star of the Reformation. Notice the timeline. 1330 is his life, roughly 31 maybe, to 1384. Now, Wycliffe was greatly influenced by the Fourth Lateran Council. And we will see that as we would consider some of his life. Born in Yorkshire, England in 1330, he was a scholar and teacher at Oxford. And before it was a thing, he was a champion of what we've come to know as sola scriptura. Though he never said it, he certainly held to it. Throughout the centuries, the church has produced a long line of godly men who at times stood as beacons of light in the midst of much darkness. In the early years, Athanasius, Augustine, and Jerome stood as pillars in the church amongst formidable heretical opposition. Early on in the reign of the papacy, Gregory I served to provide the stability and continuity the church was in great need of. In later times, the reformers such as Luther, Calvin, were raised up as heralds of the truth. In more recent church history, we can look to the names of Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, who stand in the long line of God, as godly preachers. Robert Murray McShane and Jim Elliott are seen as giants of the faith who died young, spending themselves for the kingdom of God. Amidst the long and numerous line of godly men and women who were champions of the faith, falls John Wycliffe. And also, who would come just a short time later, John Hoos. These two were the main forerunners to one of the greatest events in the history of the church. Each of these two, more so of, of Wycliffe, can be slightly compared to that of a lesser John the Baptist, as he was the forerunner of Christ. The boldness of Wycliffe and Hus and their courageous mission can only be matched throughout history, but never exceeded. This is John Wycliffe. So what are some things that are significant? And let me ask you and open up quickly here. What do you know? What have you heard about this man? What, the name? Is there any type of uh, thoughts that come to your mind when you hear about this larger-than-life figure? Bible translation. Yeah, that, I think that's number one for a lot of us. We, for a long time, we supported two missionaries who are Wycliffe Bible translators. And that is a missionary work that has continued and continues on this day. The translation of Bibles into native tongues that comes because of the mission work of John Wycliffe. Any other thoughts about this character? Every picture, he's got this like stick in his hand. I tried to find one without. I don't know what it is. Baseball wasn't invented, so it's not a Louisville slugger that he's holding in this picture, but uh, every picture of Wycliffe, he's got the stick. Maybe he had a limp. I don't know. Maybe it's a walking stick. I'm not entirely sure. Any other thoughts about this character? They treated him very, very badly. 
especially after he died. He, they desecrated his grave. Was that clock slow or fast? That clock's slow. Listen, we have three minutes left. So um, I can blast through Wycliffe, but I don't think it'll do justice. And so instead of going through um, and rifling off uh, concerning the, the life of John Wycliffe, he's too important to, to the pre-Reformation. So we will stop here with Wycliffe. But I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Even the, the events and the things that we've talked about this morning, how is it that we can apply church history to our lives? How is it that church history can be for the church? There's nothing, nothing new under the sun. Agreed. I, I think one of the takeaways to, yes. That's right. That's right. God's word never changes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would tell you, you cannot look at church history apart from when we say the providence of God, what is that? What is that? It's through the working of the Spirit and in, in, in all throughout. I also think that it's, you know, it's very important that we, one, we know what we believe, but it's also very important that we know what others around us believe. We live in New England. We live in Rhode Island. What is the dominant religious persuasion of those that live in Rhode Island? Catholic, right? Roman Catholic, right? And so there's a sense that as professing believers and Christians, we should understand what those around us believe. Not so that we can go and try to tongue-tie them or apologetically hamstring them, but so that we can effectively minister, so that we can effectively reason, that we can talk to and engage in meaningful dialogue and conversation. Because I tell you, It is profitable, let's just say it that way, that it would be profitable to be able to engage our friends, our family members that hold to a different system of beliefs and be able to rightfully reason from the word of God that never changes because we have hearts that love, motivated for the glory of Christ, the purity of his word, and for the souls of people. Any other final thoughts concerning this pre-Reformation era? Let me just say it only gets better from here. Wycliffe, the Great Schism, Huss, Luther, Calvin, the Geneva Bible, the King James Version. I mean, I could keep going, you, you know, the First Great Awakening. I mean, I, I am so excited, like, how are we going to do this in the next 10 years? <laughs> I am going to say it. We're going to get to the modern day before the end of this year. Um, and hopefully, uh, 
the, ta- the talking, the teaching, the discussion on church history whets your appetite that you might pick up a book or you might read something. I'm not going to be exhaustive, but I would rather leave you wanting to learn more. So, may God continue as he has always done to providentially guide his church and may we, by application, be those that contribute in the history of the church, for the church, and ultimately for God's glory. Let's pray.